Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. Today on the podcast, we have Joe Brusuelis, the Chief Economist for RSM, who is here to provide a first quarter economic update. Joe, thanks for joining me. No problem, Katie. It's always good to see you, and it's always good to be here in Chicago on a cold, and I mean cold, winter day. By cold, you mean beautiful. Beautiful, yes. Let's just cut to the chase. Talk about the state of the economy right now. Okay, so, you know, we've had a lot of uncertainty overhanging the economy over the past year. Much of that has to do with what an economist would call endogenous policy choices by the U.S. government, i.e., that's the trade conflicts mm-hmm. that Mr. Trump is now ensnared in. That, the end of 2018, began to rear its ugly head both in financial asset markets and in the economy. As we look ahead, middle market firms should anticipate a slowing in demand on the back of what's called and justifiably so, a rising uncertainty tax. Mm. You know, if you take a look back at the last 90 days of 2018, what did you see? Massive mind-bending volatility across asset classes. Okay, what caused that? If you're out there, you know, and you're busy, you're a middle market investor or you're a middle market firm manager, take a second look back and think about it this way. That volatility that we observed should be understood as a proxy for loss of cash flows linked to trade policy. As those cash flows slowed, investors pulled back, and we got we began to see, wow, what happens if the trade conflict goes sideways and it gets a little bit more intense? Both investors pulled back, mm-hmm. firm managers pulled back, and you got a classic slowing in the economy linked to political uncertainty. Okay, why does this matter? Those big active multinational firms that have spent trillions of dollars and investing in these global supply chains are now seeing a loss of cash flow from those investments. Now, we're in a political and economic time and a social time where people don't like big business, big firms. Okay, I get that, sure. And I understand the the concerns around inequality. Unfortunately, those big firms are at the heart and soul of all of our 401ks. They're at the heart and soul of the ecosystems that middle market firms feed into. Mm -hmm. So this is a real I mean, just right on point question. What's going to happen with the trade conflict? How will it impact the large firms that sit atop those ecosystems? And how will that spill over into the real economy, which is the beating heart and soul of the middle market? So we should expect to see business slow considerably in the first quarter. And we're talking 1.5 to 1.8% GDP rate. Now, hiring, which will continue to look good, will tend to lag what goes on in the overall economy. Mm. What do you want to look for? Every Thursday morning at 8.30 a.m. Eastern, we had initial jobless claims. Watch that top line and see if you can construct a 13-week moving average. As you see, the pace of firing begin to increase. That will That is a result of a function of increasing uncertainty and concerns around whether demand is, is sustainable as we enter the 10th year of the business cycle expansion. The second thing that you want to look for is a decline in fixed business investment. Mm -hmm. Now, because of the government shutdown, we haven't got the Q4 GDP data yet. My sense is you're going to see outlays on capital expenditures be flat in the fourth quarter. When we get that data, and even if it's anywhere near it, a little bit above it or a little bit below it, that is a minus sign, you're going to see investors take a second look at the durability of the current expansion. So we really are on recession watch now. Not because of the economy, but because of endogenous policy choices that have been made. 
both at the White House and the lag impact of monetary policy based on two years of interest rate increases at the Fed. Hmm. In addition to global economic headwinds and, and really a real noticeable decline in financial conditions, which means financial conditions are less accommodative to risk-taking, risk appetite, and growth. Hmm. And so this is the combustible mix of different forms of decisions, both that are endogenous to the economy and from the political uh, sector. Hmm. And I understand the the manufacturing data that came out in January was pretty favorable. Was that an outlier? So let's talk about that. Yeah, it was favorable. It declined. It just didn't decline as much as investors (laughs) expected. So it was spun as favorable. Mm -hmm. All right. So here's what happened in the second half of 2018 with respect to manufacturing. Because we saw a glide path from 0% tariffs to 10% tariffs on what we import from China, with the possibility of them moving to 25%, an enormous amount of activity was pulled forward out of 2019 into 2018. Hmm. We expect to see a continued deterioration in overall industrial production and manufacturing sentiment going through essentially the first half of, of 2019 as a form of compensation of pulling that growth forward. Now, if there's a trade deal, we could see that smoothed out and you'll see a pickup in demand. If there's an extension or if there's an extension and a hike in the tariff rate to 25%, then we're having a very different decision, I think. Moreover, as we sit and talk about this, we're a few days away from another potential government shutdown. Mm -hmm. And the Commerce Department on uh, February 17th will either have or or release uh, its decision on whether the administration can justify uh, using national security concerns, i.e. Section 232, Mm -hmm. as a reason for imposing tariffs on European and Asian auto imports. So we have a lot of risk on the table. So the two things that I'm focused on with respect to manufacturing, are we going to 25% or is there going to be a trade deal? Are we going to use 232 as a method of justifying tariffs on European and Japanese auto imports? If so, you and I need to have a very different discussion about what the outlook for growth looks like in the second half of 2019. And hint, it probably isn't good. What's the chance that we enter into a recession? All right. So I don't think that's in the cards this year Mm. unless we see a significant hike in import taxes, whether they're on Europe or Japanese automobiles Mm -hmm. or on all imports from China. My go-to indicator is the New York Fed's Markov switching model, which provides a pretty darn good estimate of recession probabilities. Right now, it sits at 23.65%. That's up from 15% a year ago. 23% 23% may not sound like, sound like a lot, but here's how you under interpret it. Once that probability breaches 28%, you're going to have a recession usually within about 12 months. Wow, okay. Since World War II, once it's breached that level, it just hasn't been wrong. So we are late in the business cycle, given some of the, the political uncertainties domestic and, econo- and international economic shocks we're experiencing. Uh, it's something that we're now really actively looking at in order to provide strong, forward-looking guidance for our clients. Do you anticipate a particular level of severity? You know, are we going to see a repeat of 2007? Okay, so yeah, let's thank you for asking that question. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. this is not going to be the same thing as 2007. It looks to me like this should be analogous to the recession we, we were engaged in in 91, 92, Mm-hmm. Um, it was caused by multiple of factors. It wasn't just one big thing like 27, mm-hmm. 2007, 2008. Um, we should have a garden variety, six to nine month recession. The risks around that are that typically during the recessions in the post-war period, 
The Federal Reserve's had 600 basis points of firepower, meaning they could go from the federal funds rate being from 6% essentially to zero, or mostly it was 8% to 2%. And then you have real negative interest rates because of inflation. And then you'd have fiscal firepower equal to or greater than the whole blown in private fixed investment. So let's say that this time private fixed investment declined by three quarters of a trillion dollars. Well, we'd have about a trillion dollar investment. We have a $20 trillion economy. That sort of makes sense. The problem is the Federal Reserve, its primary policy tool, the Federal Reserve rate, sits at about 250 basis points or 2.5% at the upper boundary, right? So they're only going to have a little less than half of what they traditionally do. And then we had a late cycle tax cut, which unfortunately did not pay for itself. So we're going to have fairly large uh, annual operating deficits, as far as the eye can see, it should be about $1.3 trillion this year, and will be about 5.5% of overall GDP quite quickly. That may put constraints on the firefighting that the Fed and the fiscal authority can do. That could cause an elongation of the downturn. Say instead of being six to nine months, it might be 12 to 18 months. Hmm. Europe, which is already on the doorstep of recession, it's quite close. The European Central Bank has now negative interest rates mm. as their official policy. They don't have anywhere that they can cut, right? So they're going to have to start buying assets again if the economy really does move into recession. Mm. And that's a harbinger of things to come with respect to the innovation uh, and policy landscape that the Fed often uh, creates. Um, and when we talk about our reading list later in the broadcast, I'm going to talk specifically about a paper which talks about the use of negative interest rates. Hmm. And is the prediction of a mild garden variety recession, does that bake in the hysteria factor? You know, the fact that now we have high-speed trading, We the most recent recession was a pretty severe one. Can that take something that otherwise would have been mild and make it worse? So in terms of how I look and measure recessions, I don't incorporate that sort of volatility mm-hmm. into cause and effect with with respect to the duration of it. Mm-hmm. Now, it may make it more intense in certain periods, sure. right? The volatility we observed in 2018 in October, November, and December was absolutely mind-bending. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, you know, when we slow down the screens and look at what's moving markets, that's not humans doing that. Those are machines, sure. right? So some days may be worse than others, hmm. but there's no empirical, verifiable, independent research that says, yeah, there's a cause and effect relationships between that volatility and the severity or duration of research, but perhaps we'll learn something new. Yeah. And given that so much of the economic uncertainty has come from decisions within the executive branch, what are you keeping an eye on today in terms of decision-making? All right, well, at the time of the taping of this podcast, Mm -hmm. clearly the decision around keeping the the government open. Mm -hmm. Uh, We saw an $11 billion hit in the first quarter just from direct effects. Three billion of that's lost permanently. You know, hidden in the January jobs report, which was undeniably strong, Mm -hmm. was an increase of 490,000 people who reported themselves as working part-time for economic reasons. That overall boosted the top line. Mm -hmm. Um, It did send the underemployment rate up. Uh, What you're going to see is that rolled back now, at least temporarily. Should we have another government shutdown? And if we do, no one really can predict how long that will go. Mm-hmm. We'll have a secondary hit that's going to be much larger, both directly and indirectly. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is the, the use of 232. If the Department of Commerce drops it, it's justified. Uh, then I'm becoming much more concerned about the global economic outlook 
and the U.S. economic outlook. Because let's be honest, what's causing the deterioration of the global economic outlook? It's the, the, the trade spat between the U.S. and China. Hmm. Germany is the first collateral damage, global financial conditions is the second collateral damage. Hmm. And that's what in many ways is causing the overall global economic downturn. And what impact are those factors having on middle market companies right now? Well, if you have exposure into the to the global sector, yeah, it's directly impacting sure. you. Um, I think probably the government shutdown is going to have a much larger indirect impact than it has in the past shutdowns, simply because the government is a much bigger player nominally. You know, the government spends about $4 trillion a year. That's just the federal government alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we, we definitely were hearing it from the client base. We were out proactively talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when one takes a step back and looks at the overall economy, one always likes to look at overall demand conditions, right? Lower unemployment rate for the most part during 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, job gains at around 230000 per month. Rising wages. All right. When you remove half a million people or so, just indirectly from the from the the from uh, seeing wages on a consistent basis, in addition to another eight hundred thousand who weren't paid, mm-hmm. that's a recipe for a slower economy. Moreover, one of the things that concerns me about the government shutdown is that following the the fracture of the U.S. economy ten years ago, we saw more than a doubling of people on public assistance, basically EBT or what we used to call food stamps. Mm. It went from around 20 million to 48 million. It's dropped to around 40 million, so we never really did recover. Unlike past shutdowns where this was always set aside and the military was always paid, right? Mm. During this last shutdown, that wasn't the case. They had to come up with extra money to guarantee food stamps uh, or EBT through the end of March, and they never did pay a number of individuals specifically in, in the Coast Guard, right? We'll have to see how the any shutdown unfolds. At the time of this taping, there's only enough money guaranteed through early April with respect to EBT. All right, so how many people is that? It's 40 million, just under, about 12.3% of the entire population. So you're talking about 800,000 people not getting paid. Mm-hmm. Another roughly half a million not getting paid. And then you're talking about potentially 40 million people seeing a decline in their and supplemental assistance to meet their nutrition needs. Okay, that's a very different topic, right? But we'll have to see how this unfolds. But if you're a risk manager, you need to begin thinking about this in a more clear and concise fashion in order to adapt to quickly evolving conditions due to policy changes out of Washington. Let's talk about monetary policy. The Fed in its most recent meeting departed from its recent policymaking. It's keeping rates steady for now. How should this influence how corporate leaders are planning for the future? All right. So what we've seen is a very quick cessation to the Fed's uh, policy normalization campaign. The confluence of heightened risks due to U.S. government decisions, a slowing of the U.S. and global economies, all pointed towards a temporary pause of at least six months. Mm. So in my model or my estimation of the central bank's reaction function, as financial experts would talk about that, indicated, yeah, they had to back off the brakes. Just hold. Give yourself time to ascertain how the economy is reacting to the past two years of rate increases. Mm -hmm. When we talk about monetary policy, it's important to note. Policy has long and variable lags. Just because you stopped hiking interest temporarily doesn't mean you're not going to see negative effects, especially in housing and autos, the two most interest rate sensitive sectors in the economy. So for middle market firms, 
that feed into autos, that feed into housing, um, the all clear hasn't been, yet been signaled. Moreover, if there's a trade deal, if some of the negatives are, are pulled back because government says, okay, we're going to step back and just let the economy work, the U.S. could reaccelerate, and you could see one or two hikes later in the year. Mm-hmm. But for now, I think the Fed has made a wise decision. They pulled back. They pulled back in such a way, it was so quick, that they didn't even downgrade their own economic outlook. So when they meet in March and release the summary of economic projections, which contains the forecast, both on growth, inflation, employment, and rates, you should expect that to see meaningfully downwardly revised. Hmm. So a much slower pace of growth. This is in line with our forecast. We expect around 1.8% growth this year. That is indeed, we've reverted back from what's likely to be 3% in 2018 to the long-term trend rate of 1.8%. That's what's sustainable over the long period of time, absent any meaningful changes in fiscal or, or tax policy. And I know you spend a lot of time on the road talking to middle market business owners. Are there any specific examples that you can give of how companies are sort of weathering these uncertain economic times? Well, we got out in front of this. Uh, in spring of last year because we had been real concerned about Mr. Trump's uh, intentions on the trade spat. So we put out a lot of good forward-looking research and we began talking to our clients both here in the United States and in the RSM Global Alliance, Canada, Mexico, the UK, Europe, Asia. And we started to talk about business considerations, about stress testing your balance sheet, thinking about licenses and regulation, banking and finance, Do you have enough liquidity to cover excessive volatility in foreign exchange markets in case you have exposure to global supply chains? Thinking about seriously about your supply chains. Where could you get readily substitutable material in case um, your supply chains were blocked off or it was a severe increase due to import taxes? We talked about basic budgeting, talent, the big macro risks, and a number of other things. Just to begin the conversation, well, it turns out Uh, We got on the good side of this. So we have seen our clients take really smart, forward-looking, direct steps to ensure lines of liquidity, to think about alternatives to current supply chains, and really begin to stress test their balance sheet Mm -hmm. in case there is an exogenous shock that was unexpected, uh, either from the external sector or an endogenous shock that you could sort of see coming from the domestic sector. And one of the areas that we know that the new Congress will have to work on is the NAFTA Modernization Treaty. How are you advising clients in terms of the issues there and and how they're planning for their business? Well, you know, if you're talking to a global client who's on the other side of this, say say a factory in Mexico, Mm -hmm. right, where they're going to see different content rules or or a wage floor, they basically have to pull time, pull forward the time of automation and robotics Mm -hmm. into their factory in order to deal with the content rules and especially that wage floor. Now, in the short term, the increased content and wage floors probably will give a, a at least a, a competitive advantage to U.S. firms in the near term. Hmm. Over the medium to long term, all it's going to do is result in lower prices uh, of goods shipped into the United States because it's going to be produced by robots or overall automated okay. strategies. In the United States, they should expect an increase in prices. We've been very frank with our clients over the past two years that when there was going to be a NAFTA modernization, you're going to see higher prices. Uh, There's just no way around it. I mean, this is the first trade treaty the United States has entered into since the Second World War that inhibited trade. 
Hmm. that increase barriers, not reduce barriers. Hmm. When you increase barriers, it carries with an increased cost. So we've been out there client to client saying, hey, you need to look at A, B, and C to see how this is going to impact you. What was really enlightening was most of our clients didn't even think they had direct uh, exposure from the supply chain, much less indirect exposure. So I think we did some good there. Now, will the NAFTA modernization be passed? Based on my... um, Meetings on Capitol Hill and with the agencies, it would appear that both Republicans and Democrats are insisting on at least three things. One, the steel tariffs be lifted. Two, the aluminum tariffs be lifted. Mm-hmm. And three, the tariffs on Canadian softwood uh, lumber imports be lifted before they'll even bring it up to a vote. Huh. Now, that's going to be very difficult for the administration to stomach because they feel yeah. that was the big win for them. The content rules, the wage floor, and the fact that they could keep the steel and aluminum tariffs. And in many ways, this is more of a conflict of wills between the Republicans in the Senate and the, Mr. Trump in the White House than it is anything to do with the Democrats. Hmm. It's one of the untold stories of uh, our political economy at the current time. Well, one of the, the things that I like asking you most about each time you're on the podcast is what you're reading lately. So I wanted to catch right. up and see what books are on the shelf. So this is, I think, one of the more interesting things that we do on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And I know I hear about it. Mm-hmm. And people are always like, well, why are you reading this and this? Or why not this? So let me provide some context. So when you're in graduate school, hopefully progressing to a doctoral degree in whatever discipline, you sort of sign up for a research program. Mm-hmm. And you spend at least the first part of your career dedicated to that. So when I was younger and I was on that path, uh, my research programs were organized around monetary policy and labor markets. Okay. Monetary policy, specifically what would happen if there was a true crisis and interest rates had to move to zero on a nominal basis. That happened in my Mm -hmm. career arc over the last 10 years. The second thing is the direction of labor markets. So the first thing that I'm reading right now is a great paper that was just published over the last couple weeks by the San Francisco Federal Reserve. It's in their economic Mm -hmm. letters uh, area of their website. And it's like, how much could negative rates have helped the recovery? Mm -hmm. So it was a theoretical and empirical uh, exercise on, hey, the United States would have not just taken the nominal rate to zero, but would have actually operationalized that and taken rates negative. Would that have spurred a quicker recovery? In their estimation, at least in this exercise, that... Yes, it would have. It would have cut in half the time that the U.S. economy might have recovered from the greatest economic catastrophe since the Great Depression. So if you're interested in interest rates or monetary policy, you have to be part of a research program. Mine is, what do you do in a real crisis? Mm. All right. Second thing that I'm reading is the, the research program that I'm in now that I probably will be in for the rest of my career arc, which is what does the digitalization of the U.S. economy mean? How do we define it? How do we measure it? What are the policy responses for it? And then, of course, in my current job, how does it impact the real economy? So the book that I'm reading right now, or rather rereading, because I want to make sure that I, I understand it as I put together my own empirical data mm-hmm. on what digitalization means, how to estimate it, and where I think it's driving uh, the uh, fortunes of the middle market. The name of the book is Capitalism Without Capital, or The Rise of the Intangible Economy. It's written by economist Jonathan Haskell and a a British government bureaucrat by the name of Stan Westlake. Now, this is an interesting exposition into the way in which investment's changing. You know, for years, when we talked about investment, what we talked about were investments in tangible things such as buildings or vehicles, 
Today, when we talk about investment, we're not just talking about those things, which are easy to identify, fairly easy to value and quantify, to things such as software, databases, research and development, design, training, market research and branding, business process reengineering. These are the intangible things that are now driving economic growth. They're mm -hmm. driving investment. And in some ways, we're not properly quantifying or measuring that. Now, that's interesting if you're a statistician or an econometrician, right? Which my, my heart leads that way on some days. But in a bigger sense, if we don't properly understand that, it's going to be difficult for firms like the ones that we consult for make efficient allocation decisions in terms of the ratio between labor and capital or investment in things like software, intellectual property, right? And then there's the, the policy response. If our economy is much more productive than we think it is because of the rise of the intangible economy, the Federal Reserve probably ought to err on the side of caution and not increase rates as fast as they might otherwise have would in an economy ruled purely by, by tangibles. So as the digital economy takes hold, it alters the relationship of investment and prices, right? Why are we having what some economists would call a period of secular stagnation, low interest rates, low productivity, low wages? Well, that may have to do with the fact that we're not properly identifying how intangibles are changing what we do. You know, you think about Apple's elegant designs that come to market and all their new products, mm -hmm. right? Well, you pay for it. And then once you get an update, what's the price of that update, Katie? That software update? It's free. Mm. All right, so that changes the equation. So this just gives you an insight into some of the things that I'm reading that I think yeah. middle market firms, middle market investors, journalists who cover the middle market ought to be reading. It's absolutely essential as we move from an, an economy organized around traditional modes of operation, construction, Mm -hmm. right? Mineral extraction um, towards one that's organized around the intangibles of life sciences, technology, software, artistic and literary, literary creation, branding, design. I mean, it's this whole new world that's opened up that's really driving growth. And if you take a look at the, the sort of the top 20 economically dynamic areas of the economy, they're all linked to the new economy and they're moving away from the traditional economy. There is some spillover in terms of construction, hmm. right? But for the most part, there's a new economic model that's evolved that's very different from the one that prevailed prior to the fracturing of the economy in 2007. How progressive do you see the Federal Reserve being in terms of adapting to these new realities and taking them into account? Well, they, the they, they've, got a, they've got a body of research that, mm -hmm. that helped stimulate this. As a matter of fact, one of the first papers on the intangible, econ a tangible economy was written by the Federal Reserve and published in 2005. Mm -hmm. And they've helped sort of create the, the database to which we can begin testing empirically how this works, what the cause and effect is, and then begin devising policy about what, where to go. Hmm. So yeah, the federal has been, been very, very constructive and absolutely in many ways essential towards the, the formation of this new research program, which purports to or seeks to identify how this new economy actually works. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really in-depth discussion, something that I think is absolutely critical that the middle market and the firms that serve middle market 
or even firms that serve larger, larger businesses all have to be deeply engaged. And if you're not, you're engaging in sort of what I would call economic malpractice. Interesting. Good place to end it. Joe, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help listeners find out about us. After you've rated the podcast, head over to our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more stories about successful mid-sized companies and middle market M&A.